Hello, my Rebels. i got a question for you. Did you hear that there is a shortage of baby formula, like food for really, really little babies in, in America and Canada? How did that happen? I'll talk a little bit about how it happened and the bizarre fact that it hasn't been solved. You don't think Donald Trump would have solved that in a second. But as I was looking at that, I came across a factoid that Bill Gates has invested in an artificial human milk company to make synthetic human milk. And after gagging a little bit, I read the story, and I'll talk to you about these two things and whether or not they're related. That's today's show. Let me invite you before I get to that to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of this show. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. It's just eight bucks a month. I think we should raise that, frankly, because you get my daily show, plus weekly shows from four other teams here at Rebel News. That's, I think, 36 shows a month for only eight bucks. You know, even if you prefer the podcast, I'd encourage you to subscribe because that's how we survive here. We don't get any government money. So that eight bucks a month from enough people, it adds up and it helps us pay the bills. Please go to rebelnewsplus.com. Thanks. Here's today's podcast. Tonight, I'm curious about a few things, but I'm worried I'll get in trouble for asking about them. It's May 11th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Gasoline prices are so high, I can't even believe it. I see it as a car driver uh, when I fill up at the pumps. But, of course, I don't see it in everything else that is trucked or driven before it gets to me. Food, anything in a store, really. But it's a reason for inflation. And what are you going to do? Drive only two-thirds of the way to work? Only take the kids to school three days a week? There are certain things that have what economists call Price inelasticity of demand. It's a fancy way of saying no matter what the price is, you still have to buy it. With normal things, the price goes up, you consume less of it, you switch. You go without, you find an alternative. But you can't do that with gasoline. That's why politicians love to tax it so much. That pain you feel at the pump is the inelasticity. You just have to fill up with gas no matter what. I mean, maybe 1% of us can switch to taking a bus or riding a bike, at least in the summer. But it's not realistic for most of us. Just out of curiosity, I checked what Tesla electric cars are going for these days. Uh, look at this article here. The headline is uh, pretty recent. Entire Tesla lineup gets fresh round of price increases in Canada and the US. I checked, and the, and the Tesla Model 3, that's their cheapest car. It starts at 60000 Canadian. That's a luxury price. And of course, that's only if you can get your hands on them. Tesla only had 12,000 Model S's available for sale in all of Canada all of last year. My point is, there is no electric alternative. And you can't bike in the winter here. And unless you live in some very specific neighborhoods in a few of our big cities, you really can't use public transit. And it, and it wouldn't work anyways for families. Trudeau likes that, by the way. He likes the pain 
of energy poverty. He's counting on it. He wants you to feel the pain so badly when you use gasoline that you will make better choices, as he calls it. Uh, here's a clip of him a few years back on this very question. But will Canadians expect to pay higher fuel prices with the carbon taxes? Uh, I think one of the things we've seen uh, across the country is that the incentives uh, that come from uh, better from uh, better choices, uh, making choices to be cleaner and greener, uh, is exactly what we want. So he wants high gas prices. He literally wants them. He calls it pricing pollution, pricing carbon. Those are euphemisms for making you pay more for energy, the stuff of life. No one else wants to pay more. He himself doesn't pay more in his life. His energy use is all paid for by taxpayers. But do you know what you need to buy even more than gasoline? Do you know what you need to buy so badly it will drive you mad? It will put you into a panic if you cannot buy it. Food, of course, and even more precise than that, baby food. I mean, babies can't eat the same thing as grown-ups, obviously. And especially with newborns. Mother's milk is nature's solution, but some mums cannot breastfeed for a variety of reasons. They rely on baby formula, which is a special digestible substitute that attempts to replicate the nutritional value of mother's milk. And I can't even believe this is happening. There is a shortage of baby formula in America. Shortage. This is from yesterday's New York Times. A baby formula shortage leaves desperate parents searching for food. Some parents are driving hours at a time in search of supplies. Others are watering down formula or rationing it, hoping for an end to the shortage. By the way, it's happening in Canada, too, not just the U.S. Here's a headline. U.S. baby formula shortage impacting Canadian families, experts say. It's terrifying. Watering it down? Watering down baby formula? Let me read just a few sentences from that New York Times article. Marichella Marquez looked at the last can of baby formula in her kitchen on Tuesday and handed her three-year-old daughter, who suffers from a rare allergic esophageal disorder, a smaller-than-usual portion of the special nutrition she needs to stay healthy. Ms. Marquez has been calling suppliers all over Texas, asking about any new shipments. Right now, they're all, they're, they are out of it completely, she said. I'm desperate. Ms. Marquez lives outside San Antonio, a city that has seen the nation's highest rate of formula shortages. 56% of normal supplies were out of stock as of Tuesday, according to the retail software company Data Assembly. Amid a nationwide supply crunch that has left parents scrambling to feed their children. So it's not even the gasoline. You know, in gasoline, there, there's no shortage of gas. It's just extremely expensive. Here, there is literally no stuff. There's a shortage of baby formula. Money will not actually even solve this problem for you, though you'll need money to buy gas to drive around for hours to find this. Here's Washington Post. It's a big story. The baby formula shortage as, is an outrage. A sane country would fix it. Look at that picture there. Empty shelves. That's a Soviet-era thing, not an American thing. <laughs> Babies and their well-being have never been much of a priority in the United States, but an alarming shortage of infant formula and the lack of a national mobilization to keep babies fed provides a new measure of how deeply that indifference runs. Formula has been in short supply since the early days of 
the COVID-19 pandemic back then, customers who could afford it stockpiled formula to limit their trips outside. A manufacturing and delivery cycle that takes between 12 and 16 weeks from start to finish didn't keep pace. Okay, but that, that obviously hasn't been a factor in a year, right? That was a factor back then when there was a lockdown, but there has been a shortage in the past year, not, not in 2020, uh, as the supply chain broke down. That's stuff that Donald Trump excels at. He's, he's a doer. He's a fixer. He knows all about supply chains and logistics. You can't build a skyscraper without that kind of planning and logistics. Um, you, you really think the mentally declining Joe Biden knows anything about the real world? Or do you think any of his team do? I don't think so. Freight delays held up crucial ingredients like many other industries. Formula manufacturers struggled with labor shortages. And as 2021 turned into 2022, a spate of severe winter storms, slow deliveries of products to store shelves. The worst blow came in February when Abbott Nutrition recalled formula made in its Sturgis, Michigan plant. Two babies who drank formula from the plant died of bacterial infections, and others were hospitalized, although bacteria wasn't found in the samples they drank. Abbott announced the recall as a precaution. All right. But that's all cleared up now. I mean, here's the Daily Mail in the United Kingdom. Uh, you often find the best reporting <laughs> overseas. FDA, it's about the FDA. Um, you know, why is the biggest baby formula plant in U.S. still shut down after three months? Abbott says plant is safe and was not responsible for the bacteria that killed two kids, but FDA refuses to reopen it as parents across U.S. struggle to feed their babies. Abbott Labs claims its Michigan plant is not responsible for bacteria that killed at least two infants. The baby formula manufacturer alleged an FDA investigation revealed infant formula produced at Arsturgis facility is not the likely source of infection. Abbott claims products from the facility did not cause any bacterial outbreak. The plant still remains closed, despite the findings after shutting down in February amid a major product recall. Abbott says it's working closely with the FDA to restart operations of the plant. Its parents across the nation are struggling to get formula for their babies. I won't read any more than that. The Daily Mail is actually great, aren't they? It's summarizing the whole stories in point form. But did you hear it? The FDA won't let them reopen the plant. But can I show you a story from just eight days ago on CNN? Eight days ago. Look at this story on CNN. Lab-grown human milk maybe just three years away. Breast milk is the perfect food for babies, but not all mothers are able to breastfeed. And with adoption or surrogacy, parents don't have the option. Enter BioMilk. The North Carolina-based startup is working to create human milk outside of the body, from burgers to breasts. The idea first came to co-founder and chief science officer Layla Strickland in 2013, after she heard about the world's first lab-grown burger, a cell biologist by training Strickland wondered if similar technology could be used to culture human milk-producing cells, she tells CNN Business. Let me just read a little bit more. I find this stuff really gross, sorry. Biomilk is not the only company hoping to create a new kind of milk for babies. Turtle Tree, based in Singapore, and the United States is culturing stem cells to create milk components from a range of mammals, including humans, while New York-based Helena 
is using microbial fermentation to grow proteins found in human milk. By taking dairy farming out of the equation, Biomilk says its product could make feeding babies more environmentally sustainable. Producing one kilogram of packaged formula creates between 7 and 11 kilograms of carbon dioxide. According to one estimate, Biomilk is still running studies into its own carbon footprint. The promise of a greener alternative to formula has attracted investment from Bill Gates. Breakthrough Energy Ventures, alongside other investors, the Climate Focus Fund helped Biomilk raise $21 million in October 2021. With this funding, Strickland says Biomilk is focused on expanding and making more milk. We consider ourselves now in our second trimester, she says, that's so gross. Lab-grown milk and lab-grown meat. Look at this. Bill Gates, rich nations should shift entirely to synthetic beef. We spoke to the Microsoft co-founder about his new book, The Limits of His Optimism, The Tech Breakthroughs and Energy Policies We Need, and How His Thinking on Climate Change Has Evolved. That's just a year ago. And here's the World Economic Forum pushing the same thing. Hmm. They're talking about making food in a lab using stem cells of animals. What are they doing? This is Frankenstein stuff. But they also just 3D print food too. Take a look at this. We are creating a matrix here, which is a plant-based matrix, but we are ordering the fibers as if they were muscular fibers. So we are micro-extruding these filaments so that the plant-based stick has at the same time the appearance and the texture of an actual beef stick. Right, so the machine is uh, finished now. When we tear this apart, you see the fibers because we are trying to replicate what is inside the muscle of an actual animal. What do you think? I like it. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Global population is growing. We will be around 10 billion by 2050 and the meat consumption is growing globally. So we really need a solution and we need to provide alternatives to meat. What's going on here? Why is Bill Gates behind so many of these weird projects? Bill Gates and Richard Branson are betting lab-grown meat might be the food of the future. Sure, do you doubt for a second that these billionaire oligarchs eat anything other than the finest meat, Wagyu beef from Japan? They eat whatever they want. I mean, it's not like Bill Gates has a lot of respect for life. 
I mean, ask his wife about that. You know, it was also widely reported that Bill had a, a friendship or business or some kind of contact with Jeffrey Epstein and that you were not, uh, that that was very upsetting to you. Did that play a role in the, in the divorce at all in this process? Yeah, as I said, it's not one thing. It was many things. But I did not like uh, that he'd had meetings with Jeffrey Epstein, no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you made that clear to him? I made that clear to him. I also met Jeffrey Epstein exactly one time. Did you? Yes, because I wanted to see who this man was. And um, I regretted it from the second I stepped in the door. He was abhorrent. He was evil personified. I had nightmares about it afterwards. So, you know, my heart breaks for these young women because that's how I felt. And here I'm an older woman. My God, I feel terrible for those young women. It's awful. You felt that the moment you walked in. I didn't he realize was awful. that. Yeah. And you shared that with Bill and he still continued to spend time with him? Any of the questions remaining about what Bill's relationship there was, those are for Bill to answer. Okay. But I made it very clear how I felt about him. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure if you're fine with pedophile rapists like Jeffrey Epstein, you don't really care about animals or whatever it is that Bill Gates claims to care about. Doesn't care about people, does he? Bill Gates is the biggest private owner of farmland in the United States. Why? Here's another one. Here's another story. Bill Gates now owns more farmland than anyone in the U.S. Conspiracy theorists want to know why. Really? Are only conspiracy theorists curious about this? You're not, you're not interested in that question? You, you don't want to know? Yeah, if you're not naturally curious about why Bill Gates has suddenly bought up more farmland than anyone else in America, you lack any intellectual curiosity, but left-wingers will scold you for asking about it. Since when did left-wingers, by the way, run to do damage control and PR for billionaire oligarchs? Isn't that weird, too? Is it, is it about green living or something? <laughs> That's what Bill Gates says, but I don't think he really cares about the environment. As Elon Musk showed us the other day, Bill Gates is taking a massive short position against Tesla stock. The electric car company Gates doesn't just fly in private jets. He owns a private jet company. It's not about a greener world. It's about his bizarre fetishes and his desire to control people like we're ants in an ant farm. Plus, we got to say, the guy's just weird. Bill Gates has been busy in his second life as a billionaire philanthropist. On Tuesday in China, he took the next step in his crusade against poverty and disease by showing the room a jar of poop. This is a container of human feces. Yeah, no thanks. He's obsessed with poop. I mean, I'm sorry, I gotta show you this. Yuck. It will grow to every corner of the earth that needs it because it makes money every day. It's water. You know, you can't actually find out answers about this, at least not easily. I mean, try Googling these things. You won't find a lot of news about the story. You'll find rebuttals to the story that you can't see. Fact checks to the story. Fact checks paid for by Bill Gates. Just a reminder, Bill Gates, who has paid more than $300 million to media outlets, much in the same way that Justin Trudeau has done, you really can't ask him tough questions. You really can't ask him questions at all. It's a miracle. Those reporters who asked him about Jeffrey Epstein are still alive. 
I mean, you can't ask questions about him. You can't have questions for him directly. They're sort of lost in the fog. I mean, how does a guy who carries around a jar of poop and who hangs out with pedophiles get to be the boss of the world? But let me close with three clips of Bill Gates himself, the guy who says he has all the answers, the guy who tells us to obey, admitting he actually knew nothing. Look at this from just a week ago. An mRNA, uh, you know, we could even speed it up a bit faster. There had never been a commercial product using mRNA. And so it's wild that it was so fast. Even the non-mRNA vaccines worked very well. Probably the two best are the Pfizer and Moderna that are both mRNA, but even the AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, there's a lot of good vaccines. The vaccines are imperfect in, in two very important ways. One is they don't block infection. We were hoping that the vaccine would create enough antibodies in your upper respiratory tract, including your nose and throat, that vaccinated people wouldn't get infected. And part of the impetus to say, okay, even young people who don't get very sick should get vaccinated is if you can take them out of the transmission chains, that drops the numbers very rapidly. Well, once Omicron comes along, the vaccine is not reducing transmission hardly at all, particularly about three or four months after you take the vaccine. So we need to fix that. Uh, and there's good ideas about how to do that. The other thing is duration. You know, we're seeing through a variety of the data, uh, Israel data, UK data, that particularly if you're in your 70s, within four or five months of taking the vaccine, the protection really is going down. Weirdly for young people, uh, that protection does not seem to go down. And, and we've seen this with previous vaccines, like the flu vaccine actually doesn't work that well in the elderly. We're going to create some new flu vaccines that, that are much better. And so, you know, the RNA vaccines are a miracle, but they weren't perfect. Um, and so next time, I think we'll have much better vaccines and, and better therapeutics as well. Hang on. So... So is it a vaccine if it doesn't stop transmission? And is it a vaccine if it only works for a short period of time? Here's another clip from the same conversation. Take a look. It wasn't until early February when I was in a meeting that experts at the foundation said, there's no way, you know, this, there's been too much uh, travel without diagnosis uh, for us to contain this. And then at that point, we didn't really understand the fatality rate, you know, we didn't understand that it's a fairly low fatality rate and that it's a disease mainly of the elderly, kind of like flu is, although a bit different than that. So that was a pretty scary period right. uh, where the world didn't go on alert, including the United States, nearly as fast as it needed to. So, so you acknowledge, and we've known for actually more than two years, it only affects the elderly, but you still insisted that it be jabbed into every young person. You knew that, but you wanted to jab every young person. Look at this one. If, if all we would have had to do was, say, a 45-day lockdown, I think we would have gotten pretty good compliance. It says the lockdown starts extending out, uh, and you know the lockdown hasn't dropped the cases to zero, you know, so the counterfactual of, okay, how much worse would it have been if we hadn't had this lockdown is unclear. There was a lot of uncertainty about, for example, school shutdowns. Right. Uh, to this day, you know, there's still arguments about uh, 
how many cases that avoided, it's pretty clear because young people uh, don't get sick from the disease very often, uh, that we probably, if we knew everything we know today, we would have shut schools down a lot less than we did right. during this pandemic. I mean, yes, it's tricky for the elder adults, it's tricky uh, in a lot of ways. And you mean by that high school and under? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, for college, going virtual tends to work awfully well. The infection levels are a little higher as you get up into that age group. But K through 12, we have a learning deficit that will take us a long time to erase that. And sadly, it's a deficit where the inner city is where it's almost two years, suburban schools less, private schools in some cases, uh, like my kids, almost no deficit at all. So you knew it would hurt children. You knew it would hurt minority children the most. But you didn't say a thing. You knew all this. And by the way, if you or I had said any of those things on YouTube or Facebook a few months ago, indeed even today, you and I would be deleted for disinformation. Bill Gates is saying things as if they've only recently been discovered. He's still pushing vaccines that he admits don't work. I've never seen him speak out against the lockdown, by the way. In fact, one of his big lessons, he says, is that we needed to lock down harder and faster like Australia did. Bill Gates is weird. He's likely a child rapist given his association with Jeffrey Epstein. He's got a God complex, that's for sure. But most of all, he's just wrong. But as someone with $100 billion, he's immune to the consequences of being wrong. He was wrong with the pandemic, and we survived, sort of. He now wants to take control of our food. <laughs> I don't know if we'll survive that. And yeah, asking questions about it doesn't make me a conspiracy theorist. It makes me a skeptic about a dishonorable man. Stay with us for more. Well, the Ontario election is underway, and I am depressed, at least on the federal scene in the figure of Pierre Polyev. Uh, you have someone campaigning uh, for freedom, and he has standing as a uh, Harper MP and a member of parliament, and I, I think he's really resonating with the grassroots. I look at the incumbents in the province of Ontario. Doug Ford has been atrocious in his lockdownism, but if you look at the two mainstream opposition parties, the Liberal Party and the NDP, they're worse. The Liberal Party is making one of their central campaign pledges to bring back masks for school children. Well, there are some smaller parties uh, that are challenging the election. The other day, we told you more about the New Blue Party and Jim and Belinda Karahalios. Well, another smaller party that believes in freedom is led by our friend Derek Sloan. It's called the Ontario Party, and he joins us now via Skype from north of Aurelia. Derek, great to see you again. How are you? Really good. Thanks for having me today. Well, tell me about the campaign, uh, the Ontario Party. It's a new party, only a few months old, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, thrown into your first election. Are you a candidate and how many other candidates are running? So I am a candidate. The uh, party was actually founded in 2018 and they ran uh, five candidates in the last election. We, we expect to have about 100 candidates, maybe more by the time the cutoff uh, tomorrow for candidates. 
And uh, I am running in my uh, home riding of Hastings, Lennox and Addington, uh, which I represented up until recently as a federal member of parliament. And who's the incumbent there that you're challenging? So the incumbent is actually retiring. His name is Daryl Cramp. So the uh, new uh, person running for the PCs is, uh, again, an, a, a previously unelected member. And uh, so uh, hopefully that'll give us a leg up in that race. Yeah. Well, I, I find it uh, depressing that, um, that Doug Ford, who calls himself a conservative, has been anything but. But the latest polls show that he's fairly strong. Uh, what are your goals? I, I didn't know that the Ontario Party had uh, contested the last election. Thank you for that information. Uh, fielding 100 candidates, um, what do you hope to achieve? I, I, I look at the federal level and I admire Maxime Bernier, but I don't, and I know he comes in second or third in a lot of places and that means something, but he didn't punch through anywhere, including in his, in his own seat. What do you hope to achieve on election day? So we hope to win some seats. Obviously, we're, we're fighting to win generally, but we're definitely going to be focusing uh, resources on key seats that we think are, are winnable. Our hope is to win some seats. I think it's very important to have a voice in Parliament or the or the legislature, as the case may be. And we've seen that even with one voice, you know, federally or even provincially, uh, a lot can happen. A lot of uh, good information can get out there. Uh, now, you yourself are fairly well known. You were an MP and then you ran for the leadership of the Conservatives in the last time round. Are there any other candidates on your team that may be uh, publicly known, star candidates, if I can use that phrase? Yeah, so we have some really good candidates. Uh, we, and just to give you a sense of the type of people that, are, that, that want to put their name on the line, we have multiple doctors, we have multiple veterinarians, I think we have six engineers that are running. But in terms of actual sort of name, name brand candidates, we do have Rick Nichols, who is a multiple-time uh, PC member of uh, MPP from Chatham-Kent-Leamington, who will be uh, who is running under the Ontario Party. We have Tom Marazzo, who is a very high-profile leader, uh, veteran as well of the trucker convoy, and he's running for us. We have Bridget Belton, who is a uh, trucker convoy uh, 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 leader as well. Uh, we have Christine, Kristen Nagel, who's a well-known nurse that uh, will be putting her name forward. And there's many others. I don't want to uh, under, you know, uh, uh, suggest that the other candidates are not worth supporting either. But uh, those are some of the more prominent ones. And it'll be exciting to see how uh, this plays out. Great. Listen, here's a question I, I would put to Randy Hillier. In fact, I did put this to Randy Hillier the other day. It's a question I would put to the Karahelioses if they were here right now. And it goes to splitism. And I know that everyone has a different opinion on things, and there's also personal disagreements. But you know, between the new Blue Party and the Ontario Party, I see a lot of similarity in the basic philosophy of freedom and opposing the lockdown. Um, but I can't help but, but feel that if there even is a chance of punching through in a riding or two, that if there are two smaller non-established freedom-oriented parties, anti-lockdown parties, that they're going to, whatever freedom vote there is, is going to be split between the two of them. What do you, what do you think of that? You know, I couldn't agree more. I think we need to have more unity. I can say on our part that we've reached out to the new blue on multiple occasions. We published actually publicly a proposal that we sent to them in privately, and that was not uh, answered. And uh, if, if, uh, if they say the opposite, they know my phone number. I'm ready to talk anytime. 
Uh, I'd be happy to work together. Obviously, we're coming very close to this upcoming election, so it may uh, be something for another time. But I think at the very least, there should have been some kind of arrangement to not run candidates against, uh, you know, prime candidates of the other party. And we would have been happy to do that. In fact, even though we haven't heard back from them, we're not planning on running a candidate against, for example, Belinda. We think that she deserves the respect to, to run uh, un, uh, unopposed. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they haven't taken that tack and they're running a full slate against even some of our uh, stellar candidates. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of that aside, I do feel though the approach needs to be a positive, uplifting approach. We've tried to do it that way. And I would really caution some of the other groups, let's not do the you know character assassinations. Let's not do uh, you know the mudslinging. Let's focus on the target. Let's focus on where we want to take Ontario. We've had enough destruction the last couple of years to last a lifetime. Let's focus on rebuilding the province. Yeah. I know you've got to run and we've got you literally, you pulled over on the side of the road to take this Skype interview. I appreciate that. So I know I only have you for a couple more minutes, but something happened to you. You told me just before we turned the camera on just today, uh, you were permanently banned from Twitter for a political tweet. Actually, it's this tweet here where you were retweeting something from Rebel News. And we were just commenting on Teresa Tam and her latest public uh, rumination. Uh, You didn't say anything offensive or racist or violent or anything that traditionally would be considered wrong. You just had some, I don't know, political opinion on the lockdown that wasn't approved. I find this troubling because you're a political candidate leading a political party and... I mean, I think everyone should have freedom of speech, but a political leader in a campaign uh, in the middle of the campaign to be suspended is awfully meddlesome, especially when Twitter allegedly is going to be liberated now by Elon Musk calling for free speech. What do you make of this and, and what should we make of this? Well, Twitter and Facebook have limited us. Twitter banned us permanently. Facebook has has not allowed us to use advertising dollars for political purposes, which, of course, is a huge deal in the middle of a campaign. Um, Yes, it's political interference. We're, of course, going to be looking into all options, even legal options here to uh, to address this. But, you know, it's funny now. This is the second time that Teresa Tam has gotten me into trouble. And uh, frankly, it's uh, it's 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 outrageous to see the type of censorship that we're seeing on Twitter. Our party, of course, is going to fight against that. And uh, I'm glad to uh, be able to be, you know, at the forefront of this. And I know that many others have, have been censored on Twitter as well. But in the middle of an election campaign, very disturbing when, you know, a new party needs to break ground and to reach people. It's very disturbing to see that they're shutting down the conversation. Yeah, I find it very confusing. I think just the other day, Elon Musk amused that he would let Donald Trump back on. And Jack Dorsey, the former Twitter boss, says it was a mistake to kick him off. And, you know, if that I, I don't th- think either of those men speaks for Twitter today. They're sort of the past, uh, ghost of Twitter past and ghost of Twitter future. But Twitter today, uh, I, I don't know. I just Twitter is based in San Francisco. You've got a foreign company that is literally interfering in a Canadian election, this is the kind of thing that is supposed to set off alarm bells. I don't know, I guess the fact that it's a woke uh, San Francisco sensor rather than a Chinese or a Russian bot uh, means we're supposed to be okay with it. Have you have you reached out to Twitter? Have you tried to appeal this? You mentioned you might take legal action. I recommend you do. What are you, what are you doing to fight this? Because if they can do this to you, they can do this to anyone. 
So we did do the appeal process and they actually got back to us today and said that because we've had multiple strikes against us, that this is a final shutdown. The interesting thing is, is that the strikes before where we were pulled off, we appealed those and won. So it appears that the strikes count, even if you win your appeal in terms of, uh, you know, three strikes, you're out. So very, very unfortunate. Yeah, well, that is interesting. Well, listen, thanks for stopping by. I know you're busy. I appreciate you pulling over to do an interview with us. I wish you good luck on the campaign trail, and uh, we'll keep watching your Twitter battle. I think that's very important. Uh, thanks for uh, being with us today. Really glad to be here, and I know that our fight against the digital ID and some of these other health freedom issues is really uh, pushing the wrong buttons at the, the high levels there in Twitter. So we'll take our fight to the ground. Right on. All right, there you have it, Derek Sloan, the boss of the Ontario Party. Stay with us. Your letters to me are next. Hey, welcome back. Your viewer mail, Karen Icon says, thank you, Rebel, for ramping up awareness of the most essential issues in Canada. The Trudeau crime government must be exposed. Carbon, what about the billions of tons spewed by all those jets? Doing the geoengineering. We see no less than 30 flying over our land here in BC every day, burning the blue sky to gray by noon. Here in the rural area, we must have SUVs, tiny soy boy cars, and Teslas would not work in a real life scenario. Got a lot of things in there, and I appreciate the compliment. I don't think that contrails, like the, the condensation behind a vapor trail, I don't think that that's geoengineering. I acknowledge that sometimes there's cloud seeding. I grew up west of Calgary and farmers would seed the cloud to try and squeeze rain out of it. But I don't believe that regular contrails or vapor trails are, I think you call it geoengineering. I just disagree with you on that. I don't think that's accurate. Also, in regards to Trudeau, I do believe that he has committed a crime. I believe that his... Um, and I believe the RCMP believes that too. And I say that based on their assessment of his corruption in the Aga Khan millionaire island thing. But other than that specific allegation of crime, which the RCMP said they would have made had it not you know, looked bad or something, I'm reluctant to say that Trudeau is a criminal. As I say before, we can disagree with him, we can despise him, we can think he is unethical, immoral, improper, and bad for the country. But we don't want to say that what he does and says is illegal because we don't want to criminalize our political differences. By the way, if we ever did, we would be the first to be arrested. So I do think that Trudeau did commit a, a crime um, by taking uh, effectively a bribe from the Aga Khan. But I don't want to broadly say that Trudeau is a criminal. Jared144 says the roads keep getting worse and we need trucks and SUVs just to avoid unnecessary damage and premature repairs. That's a good point. You know, I, I really had never looked into pricing of Teslas, but I did today. 60 grand for that baby model. I mean, that is a rich person's car. And even if you had the dough, you know, only 12,000 Model 3s were sold in Canada all last year. It's just not a real solution. SGJ says, why are you allowed to be a minister with a criminal record? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I know for a fact that the RCMP vets members of cabinet because they're privy to national secrets, economic secrets, diplomatic secrets, national security secrets, military secrets. And of course, we're part of the five eyes 
spy cartel, United States, UK, us, Australia, New Zealand. And so we share the secrets of our closest allies. Do you really want a convicted criminal in that cabinet? Now, that's something that a curious person might ask, but I don't know if I've seen a single journalist ask Trudeau about the wisdom of putting a convicted criminal in there. <laughs> well, that's the show for today. Until tomorrow, I want to leave you with a new video of the day from our newest hire, Juan Mendoza Diaz, um, who is in Florida covering one of the most interesting politicians in the world, Ron DeSantis, honoring victims of communism um, and uh, mandating that that story be taught in class. Here's Juan Diaz. I'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Keep fighting for freedom. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held a conference in Miami, Florida at the Freedom Tower to give honor to the victims of communism. During the conference, he also signed bills that would give funding to the Freedom Tower, make November 7th Victims of Communism Day, and ensure that high school students in the state of Florida would learn about the evils and horrors of communism. Freedom is not free, uh, that you have to fight uh, for your rights, and that there are a lot of people out there that would love uh, nothing more than to put you under some form of oppression. And so we're going to maybe talk about the budget, but before that, uh, we actually have a great piece of legislation uh, that we're going to sign here today, and I couldn't think of a better place uh, to sign. Uh, today, uh, I am signing HB 395, which will officially designate November 7th as Victims of Communism Day to honor the more than 100 million people who have fallen victim to communist regimes across the world. Next July will mark the 10 years anniversary of the killing of my father at the hands of the, of the Cuban regime. But sadly, my father was not the only one killed that day. My dear friend, Harris Alberto, 32 years old, was also killed 10 years ago. As thousands of Cubans before them during these six decades. Actually, as also some Cubans after them, as last July 11th, when Julius Laurencio was, was shut down in the street just because he was filming a peaceful protest. Actually, when we talk today, at least 1,000 Cubans are suffering political prison just for peacefully marching, demanding freedom, demanding the end of communism, the same, the same evil that now is going to be taught at the schools in whole Florida, also to commemorate all the victims. Actually, I'm, I'm now looking at the, at the room and I'm recognizing victims of communism while I talk. It's time to stop 
this process, this factory of victims that is the communist. What, what these, this legislation represents, what this freedom power represents, uh, we've got to be willing to speak out uh, when we see things that, that aren't consistent with our values in, in our own country. And most recently, having the federal government set up a disinformation bureau in the Department of Homeland Security is wrong. What they are doing to try to stifle dissent, to try to elevate a chosen political narrative that's endorsed by the regime, and to try to marginalize dissenters is not what a free society is all about. And what they will use that for, I believe, is to feed the social media platforms with what they want to be censored and not want to be censored. And I'm just thankful that Elon Musk is taking over Twitter. second to none, so he's going to improve the company for sure, but they were worried about him being in control and then them losing control of the narrative because a lot of the stuff that's been censored over the last few years has turned out to be true when you look at a lot of the stuff. I mean, there were guys, and they were, they were hammering me because I said kids needed to be in school in 2020, and they had all these people saying all this stuff now. No one will even admit that they wanted the kids, like, even though many people did, uh, including in Florida, uh, who were fighting for politics reasons. So you see all these different things, and that, I think, is really what, what some of these social media platforms have become, is you know, they want to enforce one viewpoint and one narrative, and then if you speak out against that, maybe you'll be suspended, maybe you'll be totally deplatformed, maybe your post will be, will be censored. They even do it for satire sites like the Babylon Bee. And that's fact, that's one of the reasons why I think Musk was interested in doing the Twitter. So the opposition to what he was trying to do was not rooted in business judgment. It wasn't an economic objection. Uh, it was an objection for them losing control of the narrative. I think it's a good thing that they lose control of the narrative. I think it's a good thing that Americans are able to speak out, uh, and particularly when a lot of these false narratives are trying to be shoved down the throat with some of these uh, some of these major companies. And so we, we made it be clear in Florida, like our pension happened to have Twitter shares, we would have had standing to pursue action against the board of directors if they violated their fiduciary obligations. So we let it be known we were we were willing to do that. Uh, the board of administration sent all the board of directors for Twitter a letter. Um, and I think that they realized, what just Florida, a lot of people were, were watching this. And so being able to accept it and go forward was the right business judgment to make. I think our, our pension fund's gonna make like $15 million out of that transaction, which is, which is positive for our, for our pensioners. Uh, but I think more important to me than just the dollars and cents is uh, doubling down on, on free expression. Um, you know, there's no orthodoxy that, that the government can impose um, on us. We're able to speak, speak our mind, and, uh, and that disinformation bureau needs to go the way of the buffalo. Uh, we need to eliminate that. That is, a, that is a big danger to free expression in this country. Okay, we're going to get going. This is the victims of communism. Thank you all. For more coverage on the state of Florida, 
Please stay tuned to Rebel News on social media.